0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's time for a good story. Today we're remembering one of the greatest golf movies ever made, depending on who's doing the choosing. For those who like a slapstick comedy with great comedic actors who like to ad-lib a lot, canny groundhogs, crazy greenscapers, and a script that beers like a wicked slice, Caddyshack is the easy choice. This National Lampoon-slash-Doug-Kenny-affected classic has become a cult movie. There are those who can't get enough of it, and it has produced a handful of memorable quotes which you probably already know, but we will share as we get into the story. If you haven't seen Caddyshack, this will be your primer. I'll tell you more about this movie than you'll ever need to know, and what to look for when you watch it, giving you the inside scoop, or deep wedge if you prefer. As it turns out, the movie idea was scripted in part by Bill Murray's brother, Brian, who worked as a caddy as a teen, and the story is really clever in that he highlighted all the unique personalities that you're bound to find at a prestigious country club and then exaggerated each one, as a sidewalk artist might do with your facial profile. If you have a cleft chin or big ears, you don't want to go near one of those guys. Let me introduce the major characters of Caddyshack so that you'll know who's who as we go forward. First, there's young Danny Noonan, played by Michael O'Keefe, who caddies at the fictional Bushwood Country Club. The story is based on Danny's experiences while working as a caddy at Bushwood, and the movie opens with Danny in the Noonan home, grabbing everything he needs for his day of work, including a quick meal, before he leaves home. Again, a reminder that Brian Murray, Bill's brother, wrote the script in a sort of autobiographical way and really did work as a caddy. So that much is reflected in the story. It's important to know that the Murray family was Catholic and large. Heck, Bill had Bill had five brothers and three sisters. In the movie, one of those sisters was named Deb, played by Debbie Frank. That one has great legs, and you can't help but notice her. Watching the opening scenes in the Noonan house, you can't count or name all the kids you see. My guess is twelve but some say up to 15. Danny leaves the house on his bicycle, and although the script places the story in Nebraska, he's seen riding to work through the palm trees and mansions of Pasadena, California, which change to Florida oak trees as soon as Danny passes the clubhouse entrance. This happens because the movie was filmed in California and Florida, and even on some other courses in Florida with regard to special effects. In California, Industry Hills Golf Club at Pacific Palms about 23 miles south of L.A., hosted some of the filming. Many of the Florida shots were filmed at what is now Grand Oaks Country Club in Davie, about 10 miles from Fort Lauderdale. The waterside scenes were filmed at Boca Raton Hotel and Country Club in Boca Raton. Going back to Michael O'Keefe, who played Danny, O'Keefe was born in Mount Vernon, New York in 1955 and is best known for his role as Danny in Caddyshack, as well as Ben Meacham in The Great Santini, the role for which he received an Academy Award nomination. And he played Daryl Palmer in The Slugger's Wife. He's seen in a bunch of movies and TV shows like Blue Bud, Law and & Order, and Wings, and The West Wing, to name a few. Next comes Bill Murray, who, unless you've been living under a rock in Chechnya, is a first-rate comedian and overall cut-up who often is best when ad-libbing his parts. Bill, at the time of the movie in 1979, had five brothers, Andy, Brian, Ed, Joel, and John, and all six of them worked as caddies growing up in a suburb of Chicago. The oldest brother, Ed, who sadly just passed away, got his brother started in caddying at the Indian Hills Country Club in Illinois. He was 10 when he started looping, and the others followed in turn. If you're wondering what the term looping means, carrying a loop means carrying bags for the full 18 holes. A double loop is 36 holes. This I learned when I started caddying at St. David's Golf Club in Wayne, PA at the age of 13. And yes, even Placid St. David's had its outstanding personalities, so I could see where Brian got his inspiration. Ours at St. David's was a security guard who looked exactly like Jonathan Winters. I was sent by cart one day to fetch him when the foursome I was caddying for encountered a nearly naked old man, nearly meaning he was wearing only white crew socks, sitting on the apron of the 14th Green. Many of the Murray brothers work in show business and have done well, while Andy, the chef and restaurateur, owns the famous Caddyshack restaurant. Bill's brother Brian, who changed his name to Brian Doyle Murray to avoid confusion with another Brian Murray in the movie business, wrote the screenplay and played Lou Loomis in the movie. In Caddyshack, Bill Murray plays the greenskeeper Carl Spackler, the intellectually challenged but deadly efficient greenskeeper whose job during the film was that of eliminating a very bright gopher who always seemed to be one step ahead of him and can be seen dancing, as it were, to Kenny Loggins' I'm All Right in the opening credits. How much of Carl Spackler was scripted and how much of him was born of Bill Murray's improvisational skills is open to your imagination, but from what most people say, it was all improv. Here's his character analysis. Speckler lives in a greenskeeper garage of Bushwood Country Club. He lives in squalor, which he attributes to credit trouble. Junk is strewn everywhere. The golfer Ty Webb, played by Chevy Chase, visits him and tells him the place is really awful. But a home is a home, and Carl is content. He rarely leaves the confines of Bushwood. He works as the assistant greenskeeper at Bushwood. Carl reckons he'll replace his boss, the Scottish Sandy McFittish, as head greenskeeper in six years' time, so he's planning for his future. His duties include changing the hole locations and donning a hazmat suit to disinfect the bushwood pool when necessary. At one point, the pool patrons begin screaming because something evil has been spotted in the water. Spackler arrives soon after and enters the pool in a hazmat suit, finally finding what looks to be a floating turd. What he does with it? I'll leave it for you to guess. Spackler typically works alone, but occasionally hangs with the caddies. He was a caddy himself once, on a course in the Himalayas, where he once caddied for the Dalai Lama. On courses today, when you hear a player complimenting another with, You're the Lama. That's a caddyshack-ism for, You hit a long ball. There are others you'll need to know in order to understand golf course lingo these days. Example. A few weeks ago, I was watching a weekend morning news program and one of the two hosts commented on the very tacky plaid suit jacket the other was wearing, calling it a bushwood jacket. Forty-three years later, that's now become the expression for tacky menswear. Had I not been familiar with Caddyshack lingo, that one would have flown over my head like a tightless Pro V1. Carl dreams of one day becoming a Cinderella story and winning the Masters. Until then, he breeds grass hybrids in his spare time. He describes one such breed to Chevy Chase. You can play 36 holes on it in the afternoon, take it home, and just get stoned to the pajesus belt all night on this stuff. There's a great scene in the movie in which Carl is absently lopping off the heads of what looks like bedded tulips with his grass whip. Bill Murray had made the trip to Florida to film the scene while taking a break from Saturday Night Live, abbreviation SNL, in 1979 and was being egged on by director Ramus, who had seven days to get all the riffs out of Murray that he could possibly get. Carl steps up to the tulips, chokes up on his grass whip, and begins announcing himself. What an incredible Cinderella story. This unknown comes out of nowhere to lead the pack at Augusta. He's at the final hole. He's about 455 yards away. He's going to hit a a two-iron, I think. Carl reels back at this point and swats the head off a tulip. "'Boy, he got all that. The normally reserved Augusta crowd is going wild. "'He's going to be pleased with that. The crowd is just on its feet here. "'He's a Cinderella story. Tears in his eyes, I guess, as he lines up this last shot. "'He's got about 195 yards left, and he's got a—it looks like an eight-iron. "'This crowd has gone deadly silent. "'Cinderella story. Out of nowhere, this former greenskeeper is about to become an Augusta champion.' Then Carl rears back one last time and swat, blasts the third flower to smithereens and shouts, It's in the hole! It's in the hole! Spackler's relationship status? Single, with few prospects. He was often found on the golf course ogling old ladies from afar, or sometimes as they passed by while he was manning the ball washer, which he pumped vigorously when they passed by. Carl Spackler's biggest challenge? was saving Bushwood from an apparent gopher infestation. I have been pushed, he says. It's about time somebody teaches these varmints a little lesson about morality and about what it's like to be a decent, upstanding member of a society. In his crusade against the gophers, Carl employs a variety of weapons, including a hose, a rifle, and plastic explosives. In reality, he's only up against one gopher, but this gopher is particularly crafty. Carl versus Gopher becomes something of a chess game, with each of them forced to think dozens of moves ahead. The original script didn't call for a lot of Carl or the Gopher, but with Bill Murray and a very creative special effects team, it just sort of happened. As this went on with not only Bill Murray, but the other comedians as well, all trying to get their share of the laughs, other character roles were severely diminished or disappeared. That was probably the biggest behind-the-scenes gripe at Jack. But as legend has it, Most of them were too high from night partying to care much. The overall result, most people felt, was magic. The gopher is the hero. If gophers were sold as pets in the years immediately following the movie, they would have outsold cockapoos and lab retrievers. You still see gopher headcovers out there, if you're looking for gifts for your golfer buddies. Spackler's personality? Eccentric loner. He often talks to himself out of the side of his mouth. It's unclear if he talks to himself because he is usually alone, or if he's usually alone because he talks to himself. Though usually a horrible employee, he takes his gopher eradication mission to heart. It becomes a singular obsession. He is Ahab. The gopher is his white whale, and he will defeat it at all costs or fail. We'll return with Remembering Caddyshack, the comedy with balls, right after these sponsor messages. Hi everyone. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. And now, back to our story. Three other well-known comedic actors appeared in Caddyshack, those being Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield, and Ted Knight. If you know old TV, you'll recall Ted Knight from his role as the news guy, Ted Baxter, on The Mary Tyler Moore Show. In Caddyshack, he plays the character of Judge Elihu Smales, The Upright Judge, and he plays it as perfectly as an actor can play it. Ted Knight was the master of facial expressions, from profound solemnity, to bombast, to open-mouthed surprise, to mounting fury, to pure snobbery, to just about every emotion in the book, and he does it with class. With his seven-iron-up-the-keister walk, which he developed for the part, and his ability to deliver lines with comedic perfection, Ted Knight made that movie. He should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but both he and the rest of the movie, which was hugely successful, missed out on any nominations. Knight had won two Emmys in 73 and 76 for his role as Ted Baxter, so he was no stranger to recognition. He was one big reason why Mary Tyler Moore lasted from 1970 to 1977 and won 168 episodes. Ted Knight hosted an episode of Saturday Night Live in 1979 for the cast, which then included Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Jane Curtin, Bill Murray, and Bill's brother and Bill Murray's brother, Brian Doyle Murray, who again was the major creative spark for Caddyshack. 1980 was a banner year for comedies, with Airplane, Caddyshack, and the Blues Brothers all taking apart. Animal House had been released just two years before. It was a great time for national lampoon comedy, and a great time for comedy in general. Knight's character Judge Smales is the comical bad guy in the movie. He's a pompous snob with a fondness for white pants, yachting caps, big bets, and throwing his golf clubs. He's also the co-founder and president of Bushwood and a loyal member at the Rolling Legs Yacht Club. His boat is called the Flying Wasp, a sailboat, the hull of which is completely destroyed when Al Servic, played by Rodney Dangerfield, huge yacht, approaches the dock, and Dangerfield drops his anchor, onto and through the Hull of the Wasp. The newly arrived Al Servic is nouveau riche, meaning newly wealthy beyond belief and lacking any class at all. His clothes are mismatched with a lot of plaids that just don't work, giving rise to the popular caddyshack bushwood jacket, bushwood pants, the bushwood look. You get the idea. Al Cervic is club owner Judge Smale's worst nightmare, bringing profane humor lack of respect for all club members, and a bombastic presence that defies any sense or order and defines bad taste. Judge Smale's promiscuous niece Lacey also becomes a love interest for Danny, who is trying to impress the judge so he can get a scholarship, but can't resist an afternoon frolic with Lacey in Judge Smale's home. Ted Knight's given name was, hold on, Tedious Vladislav Konopka, When he returned from Europe after the war, he started his acting career at the Randall School of Dramatic Arts in Hartford, Connecticut, worked as a disc jockey, announcer, and singer, and eventually created his own TV show for a small Rhode Island TV station. In the 60s, Ted Knight stayed busy in TV and films until he got his big break with the Mary Tyler Moore Show and later The Love Boat. He stayed busy until his death from cancer in 1986. Then there was Rodney Dangerfield, who gave one of his best and most memorable performances in Caddyshack, in which he played the above-mentioned Al Servic, an obnoxious property developer who was a guest at the golf club, where he clashed with uptight Judge Elihu Smales. His role was initially smaller, but because he and fellow cast members Chevy Chase and Bill Murray proved adept at improvisation, their roles were greatly expanded during filming. As I said before, much to the chagrin of some of their castmates. Initial reviews of Caddyshack praised Dangerfield's standout performance among the wild cast. His appearance in Caddyshack led to starring roles in Easy Money and Back to School, for which he also served as co-writer. Unlike his stand-up persona, his comedy film characters were portrayed as successful and generally popular, if still loud, brash, and detested by the wealthy elite. As we just said, he was a major cause of tension on the set, Jude was overstepping others' lines with his improvisations. This was especially true with Ted Knight, who stayed true to the script and was constantly frustrated by Dangerfield's stealing of punchlines and brash actions. Maybe Dangerfield did it on purpose to get Ted Knight's character angry. Maybe he was egged on by the director to do it. But the result was a simmering dislike on the part of Ted Knight against Rodney Dangerfield. But Knight wasn't the only cast member upset by Dangerfield and other hammy comedians. Many good scripted roles ended up on the cutting room floor to allow for improv scenes from Chase, Murray, and Dangerfield. You can argue that those scenes were what made the movie popular the next time you're playing 18 with a buddy. And as for tension, I'll bet you didn't know that just a few years before the movie, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase got in a fistfight in John Belushi's large dressing room during his Saturday Night Live taping. More on that to come, but first, a little bit about Rodney Dangerfield. He was born Jacob Rodney Cohen in 1921, but he was better known by the pseudonym Rodney Dangerfield. He was an American stand-up comedian, as you all know, actor, screenwriter, and producer. He was known for his self-deprecating one-liner humor, his catchphrase, I don't get no respect, and his stand-up monologues on that theme. He began his career working as a stand-up comic at the Fantasy Lounge in New York City. His act grew in popularity as he became a mainstay on the late-night talk shows throughout the 1960s and 70s, eventually developing into a headlining act on the Las Vegas casino circuit. His catchphrase, I don't get no respect, came from an attempt to improve one of his stand-up jokes. I played hide-and-seek. They wouldn't even look for me. He appeared in a few bit parts in films, such as The Projectionist, throughout the 70s but his breakout film role came in 1980 as a boorish golfer in Caddyshack which was followed by two additional successful films in which he starred. Additional film work kept him busy throughout the rest of his life mostly in comedies but with a rare dramatic role in 1994's Natural Born Killers as an abusive father. Health troubles curtailed his output through the early 2000s before his death in 2004 following a month in a coma due to complications from heart valve surgery. His tagline most likely sprang from his real life. As a child, he got no respect from his mother, who was cruel and cold to him his entire life. Throughout his childhood, she never kissed or hugged him or showed him any sign of affection. After his father abandoned the family, his mother moved him and his sister to Kew Gardens in Queens. There he attended Richmond Hill High School, from which he graduated in 1939. And to support himself and his family, he delivered groceries and sold newspapers and ice cream at the beach. At the age of 15, Dangerfield began to write for stand-up comedians while performing at the Novelle, a resort in Ellaville, New York. At the age of 19, he legally changed his name to Jack Roy. He struggled financially for nine years, at one point performing as a singing waiter until he was fired before taking a job selling aluminum siding in the mid-1950s to support his wife and family. He later quipped that he was so little known when he gave up show business that at the time I quit, I was the only one who knew I quit. In the early 60s, he started reviving his career as an entertainer. Still working as a salesman by day, he returned to the stage, performing at many hotels in the Catskill Mountains, but still finding minimal success. He fell into debt and couldn't get booked. He later joked, "I played one club. It was so far out, my act was reviewed in Field and Stream." He came to realize that what he lacked was an image, a well-defined on-stage persona that audiences could relate to one that would distinguish him from other comics. He took on the name Rodney Dangerfield, which had been used as the comical name of a faux cowboy created by Jack Benny on his radio program at least as early as December of 1941, and later as a pseudonym by Ricky Nelson on the TV program The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. The Jack Benny character, who also received little or no respect from the outside world, served as a great inspiration to Dangerfield while he was developing his own comedy character. Dangerfield was best known for his great one-liners. Here's a few samples for you. My fan club broke up. The guy died. Last week, my house was on fire. My wife told the kids, Be quiet. You'll wake up daddy. I was ugly. Very ugly. When I was born, the doctor smacked my mother. I have nothing but troubles with my car. Every Sunday, I take my family out for a push. I bought a perfect second car. A tow truck. "'I have three kids, one of each. "'Boy, what a hotel that was. "'They stole my towel. "'I was so depressed that I decided to jump from the tenth floor. "'They sent up a priest. "'He said, "'On your mark?' "'When I was a kid, my parents moved a lot, "'but I always found them. "'I was so ugly, my mother used to feed me with a slingshot. "'I came from a real tough neighborhood.' On the street, the kids would steal hubcaps from moving cars. When I was born, the doctor came out and said to my father, I'm sorry, we did everything we could. But he pulled through. In March of 1967, the Ed Sullivan Show needed a last-minute replacement for another act, and Dangerfield became the surprise hit of the show. He then began headlining shows in Las Vegas and continued making frequent appearances on the Ed Sullivan Show. He also became a regular on the Dean Martin Show and appeared on the Tonight Show more than 70 times. He teamed up with an old pal to build the Dangerfields Comedy Club in New York City, a venue where he could perform on a regular basis without having to constantly travel. And that remained in operation until 2020. A lot of comedy stars got started there or performed there. Jerry Seinfeld, Jim Carrey, Tim Allen, Roseanne Barr, Jeff Foxworthy, Sam Kinison, Bill Hicks, Andrew Dice Clay, Louis Anderson, and Bob Saget, to name a few. In 1978, Dangerfield was invited to be the keynote speaker at Harvard University's Class Day, an annual ceremony for seniors the day before commencement. He was recognized by the Smithsonian Institution, which put one of his trademark white shirts and red ties on display. When he handed the shirt to the museum's curator, Rodney joked, "'I have a feeling you're going to use this to clean Lindbergh's plane.' On April 8, 2003, Dangerfield underwent brain surgery to improve blood flow in preparation for heart valve replacement surgery on a later date. The heart surgery took place August 24, 2004. Upon entering the University of California Los Angeles Medical Center, he uttered another characteristic one-liner when asked how long he'd be in the hospital. If all goes well, about a week. If not, about an hour and a half. He would never wake up from the anesthesia he was put under and he would ultimately die there from complications of the surgery just six weeks later, at age 82. Dangerfield was interred in the Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. On the day of his death, the randomly selected joke of the day on his website happened to be, I tell you, I get no respect from anyone. I bought a cemetery plot. The guy said, There goes the neighborhood. This led his wife, Joan Dangerfield, to choose, There goes the neighborhood, as the epitaph on his headstone which has become so well known that it's been used as a New York Times crossword puzzle clue. And then there's Chevy Chase, who most of you know as Clark Griswold, but he has more movies to his credit than any of the aforementioned actors. In Caddyshack, the six-foot-four-inch Chase plays Ty Webb, an independently wealthy man, thanks to his father, a co-owner of the country club, and he practices Zen Buddhism. He plays the course nearly daily and enjoys dispensing advice to younger golfers, especially Danny, to whom he delivers pity quotes such as, Two wrongs don't make a right, but three rights make a left. And, There's a force in the universe that makes things happen. All you have to do is get in touch with it. Stop thinking. Let things happen. And be the ball. Now, when you hear one of your golf buddies advising you to calm down, concentrate, and be the ball. You'll know where that came from. Another caddyshack Ty is a scratch golfer, but he doesn't keep score. His goal is simply to be. He wins the attractive Lacey Underall, niece of Judge Smales, with the line, You're rather attractive, for a beautiful girl with a great body. Cornelius Crane Chevy Chase, born October 8, 1943 became the key cast member in the first session of Saturday Night Live, where his recurring Weekend Update segment became a staple of the show. As both the performer and a writer, he earned three Primetime Emmy Awards out of five nominations and two Golden Globe Award nominations. Chase's early roles include the romantic comedies Foul Play in 78 and Seems Like Old Times opposite Goldie Hawn. He portrayed Clark Griswold, as you well know, in five National Lampoon's Vacation Films. He also played Irwin Fletch Fletcher in Fletch, and its sequel, Fletch Lives. He also starred, as you already know, in Caddyshack, and Spies Like Us, Three Amigos, and Hot Tub Time Machine. He has hosted the Academy Awards twice, 1987 and 1988, and briefly had his own late-night talk show, The Chevy Chase Show. He played Pierce Hawthorne on the NBC sitcom Community, From 2009 to 2012. He was born in Lower Manhattan in 1943 and grew up in Woodstock, New York. He was a member of an early underground comedy ensemble called Channel One, which he co-founded in 1967. He wrote a one-page spoof of Mission Impossible for Mad Magazine in 1970 and was a writer for the short-lived Smothers Brothers TV show in the spring of 75. In 73, he became a writer and cast member of the National Lampoon Radio Hour a syndicated satirical radio series. That National Lampoon Radio Hour also featured John Belushi, Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, and Brian Doyle Murray, all of whom later became not ready for primetime players on NBC's Saturday Night, later to be retitled NBC's Saturday Night, and finally, Saturday Night Live. Chase and Belushi also appeared in National Lampoon's off-Broadway review, Lemmings a sketch and musical send-up of popular youth culture, in which Chase also played the drums and piano during the musical numbers. Chase was one of the original cast members of Saturday Night Live. In late 1976, in the middle of the second season, Chevy Chase became the first member of the original cast to leave the show. Most people don't know he played saxophone on stage at Simon & Garfunkel's free concert at the Great Lawn in Central Park in the summer of 1991. Later that year, he helped record and appeared in a music video, Voices That Care, to entertain and support U.S. troops involved in Operation Desert Storm. While filming an episode of Saturday Night Live in 1978, it is said that Chase got into a fistfight with Bill Murray in John Belushi's dressing room. Murray and Chase's backstage brawl took place when Chase returned to host the show after his exit as a full-time cast member just two years before. In a Howard Stern interview, Chase said that Murray had been given some derogatory information about him from John Belushi. Murray, possibly feeling a little jealous that Chase had done so well during the past year or two, said something out loud about Chase. And Chase appeared in the doorway of the room just before the show was to go live and challenged Murray, telling him to stop spreading lies. And Murray charged him. Now Chase was six foot three and a half and Murray was six foot one and Chase said that he was no stranger to fights, and he had had boxing training. So he was ready to flatten Murray, who, Chase said, probably was underestimating Chase's ability to defend himself, thinking him to be a Harvard type, whereas Murray thought himself to be a tough type from Chicago. As Murray rushed forward, the instigator John Belushi sprang out of his seat and got between Chase and Murray in the doorway, taking punches from both in the head, as Chase put it, Bill Murray's brother, Brian Doyle Murray, then restrained Chase and the feud ended. In the following years, Chase said the two became friends and played golf together when opportunity presented itself, probably during the filming of Caddyshack, although Murray was only there for seven days. SNL cast members Jane Curtin, Lorraine Newman and Gilda Radner witnessed that incident. In a talk show appearance in 2021, Lorraine Newman noted, It was very sad and painful and awful. I think they both knew the one thing that they could say to each other that could hurt the most, and that's what I think incited it. So we've covered the major actors and their backgrounds, and now it's time to talk about the real star of the movie Caddyshack, which was the Gopher. Judge Smales arrives at the club and talks to the head groundskeeper, scottish born Sandy McFittish, and his assistant, Carl Spackler, who had just finished ogling a group of older lady golfers from his vantage point behind the ball washer. After watching the ladies tee off, Spackler is given the job of eliminating the gopher problem, and his efforts continue with mixed success throughout the rest of the movie. You can't discuss the gopher without talking about his creator, John Dykstra, the special effects specialist. His team created the entire world of the gopher, including explosives, floods, and fires in the gopher tunnels, as Spackler went through every effort to kill the gopher. Dykstra is no stranger to Oscar's having won one for Star Wars in 1978 and Spider-Man in 2005. Why there was no nomination for Caddyshack is a Hollywood mystery. When they filmed the movie originally, the gopher was a hand puppet with one or two shots of his head peeping out of a hole. But Murray really helped to expand the role of the gopher, with the help of Grant McCune and puppeteer Joe Garlington and team. The work was begun. After the filming on the golf course was done, and the course was no longer... They set up a huge trailer, covered with contoured dirt, and covered that with a layer of sod. They used it at a golf course at Encino. The trailer was parked in the foreground of the shots, and the course served as the background. There was a scene where the gopher problem was getting so bad that a flag and a pin at one hole started shaking and soon wriggled down into the ground. The special effects people also dug a tunnel and had a tank with thousands of gallons of water to create the shot where Spackler's hose comes down the hole and the gopher runs away through the tunnel. The special effects with the gopher running through the tunnel and outsmarting Spackler at every turn were hilarious. They made the movie. The tunnel had only three walls, so the camera could follow the gopher. They used natural gas canisters to create the scene where fire comes raging through the tunnel. At the beginning and end scenes of the movie, the gopher dances to the music being played, and it took some work to let him dance with personality, but it worked. What Lady and the Tramp did for Cocker Spaniels, Caddyshack did for gophers, starting with head covers for golf drivers, license to kill gopher t-shirts and hats, gopher headbands, gophers holding a golf ball with be-the-ball markers for golfers, gopher caps, and much more. How much of the gopher action was created after the script? The answer is... The original script featured one short scene of head groundskeeper Sandy McFittish chasing a mole. That was it. As we said previously, the film Caddyshack was inspired by writer and co-star Brian Doyle Murray's memories by working as a caddy at Indian Hill Club in Winnetka, Illinois. His brothers Bill and John Murray, production assistant and caddy extra, relatively, and director Harold Ramis, had also worked as caddies when they were teenagers. Many of the characters in the film were based on characters they had encountered through their various experiences, including a young woman upon whom the character of Maggie is based. The character of Maggie was played by Sarah Holcomb, who also appeared in Animal House. She had a good Irish accent, which is what Brian Doyle Murray was looking for when he wrote the script, remembering the female Irish exchange students that the course restaurant he worked on brought in every year as help. To many people, there's just something magic about Irish women. One of my favorite movies is The Luck of the Irish with Tyrone Power. Great movie, and I highly recommend it. Then there were the Haverkemps, a doddering old couple, John and Ilma, longtime members of the club, who can barely hit the ball beyond their shadows. Another memory from Brian Murray. Then there's the scene in which Al Servick's shot hits Judge Smales in the groin, an event which came from director Ramis's. Caddy Memories Caddyshack was shot over 11 weeks in the autumn of 1979. It would have been earlier, but Hurricane David delayed shooting in September. According to Ramus, Rolling Hills Course in Florida was picked because it didn't have any palm trees and he wanted the film to have a Midwest feel. There are certain explosions which take place at the end of the film which attracted the attention of a commercial pilot who reported a possible plane crash there. I won't give away the explosion, but I can tell you, that the Gopher survived. Caddyshack was released on July 25, 1980 in 656 theaters and grossed $3.1 million on its opening weekend. It went on to make $40 million in North America and $60 million worldwide. The reviewers were lukewarm, but the movies become a sort of cult favorite among golfers and comedy enthusiasts. In later years, Tiger Woods said that he liked the film, and he played Spackler in an American Express commercial based on the film. The sequel, Caddyshack 2, was released in 1988, and is still considered one of the biggest sequel flops in filmmaking. Of all the talent, only Chevy Chase reprised his role. All five Murray brothers opened a Caddyshack restaurant in St. Augustine, Florida, which was designed to resemble the fictional Bushwood Country Club. The brothers are all active partners, and at last check, some of them occasionally make appearances there. Bill Murray and two of his brothers, Andy and Joel, were in attendance when another venue called Murray Brothers Caddyshack at the Crown Plaza Chicago O'Hare Hotel and Conference Center opened in Rosemont, Illinois, in 2018. I hope you enjoyed our look back at Caddyshack, and I think you'll enjoy your next viewing a lot more now that you have the rest of the story. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We always appreciate reviews. And we have a few recent ones for you. Easy to listen to. Interesting stories. 1,001 heroes. 5 stars. I've listened to many of your podcasts and find that your voice, subject matter, and narration are interesting, relaxing, and educational. Currently listening to the John Wayne podcast. He is my all-time favorite actor. Keep up the good work. A listener from Alberta, Canada. Hours of fun. Apple podcast. Canada. And this one great john wayne story five stars very interesting podcast about john wayne's life especially liked how you showed him to be a real person and not just a movie icon to add to your story i wanted to tell you about a friend of mine who was an extra in the movie the horse soldiers he was one of the boys from the virginia military academy my friend told me that every day at lunchtime that john wayne would sit down on the ground with one of the boys and tell them stories this was a very special memory for him That one from New Mexico gal, Apple Podcast, U.S. Good to hear from you, New Mexico gal. Hope you're doing well. And this one, Tornado, five stars. Thank you for sharing the information on tornadoes. I live in south-central Kentucky, and I've seen the destruction an F3 can do, and I'm a bit more prepared to survive after hearing what an F5 can do. Ultimately, I'm in God's hands. That one from Fool for You, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very much for taking the time to sit down and write us those reviews. They're greatly, greatly appreciated. For those of you who are new to 1001, we have other shows as well, and I'll mention two of them today. The first one is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. There we cover short stories from everybody from Hemingway, Jack London, to Agatha Christie, to Lucy Maud Montgomery. There are a lot of great classic stories out there, and I enjoy sharing them with you. It is often our highest-rated show, along with 1,001 heroes here. I'm also inviting you to try 1,001 Sherlock Holmes stories and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. That's 1,001 Sherlock Holmes stories. Start that one all the way back at the beginning, and you'll enjoy all the stories coming up through. That's it for today, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this story. Many more great stories to come. Stay safe. And we'll be back soon. Silent Cinderella story out of nowhere, a former greenskeeper now about to become the Masters champion. It looks like I'm a wreck. It's in the hole. It's in the hole.